Yeah, what up, y'all? It's your boy, Flame, a.k.a. St. Lou. And remember, God does not need our good works, but our neighbor does, you <laughs> Welcome back to Extra Notes Academy. This right here, you can consider it a part two to episode number four titled Old Adam versus Baptism. So this right here is my promise to deal with spirit baptism. Now, if you remember at the top of the song, Why Wait, I made a bold statement. Let's hear it. Hey, we ain't talking about no spirit baptism either. Scripture don't make that distinction. Why wait? Y'all remember that? <laughs> if you do not remember it, go check out the project, Word and Water. The song is titled, Why Wait? And on the particular song, the reason why I made that statement is because there is this notion out there that there is a competing baptism with water baptism or that spirit baptism replaces or transcends water baptism. And I found this out uh, just reading through some of the comments on my Facebook page. There was a guy who made a statement. He said, Flame, I don't need to be water baptized because I've been baptized in the spirit. And I'm like, okay, never heard that before. And then he just goes on this discourse, unpacking the notion that based upon a book of Acts and what happened at Pentecost, that in contemporary times, we now have, I guess, a duplicate experience of that or maybe a continuation of that that has replaced water baptism. And I was like, wow, that's definitely new to my ears. I've heard the notion of a person having a Pentecost experience where they speak in tongues or something like that. But even those people do not replace water baptism with that. If anything, they'll have both. They'll baptize people. Typically, they'll do it in Jesus's name only. But then they'll also have this expectation for people to have this sort of second baptism, this spirit baptism with the gift of tongues that follows. So I've heard that version, but his was very unique. And um, so, yeah, I say, man, it's a lot of um, aberrant ideas out there. So let's address them. I have an article here. It's titled The Baptism of the Holy Spirit. I'll put the link in the title in the description or in the, yeah, in the description section below so you all can check this article out on your own time. So with that being said, let's get right into it. The Baptism of the Holy Spirit. There is a broad in our land and others a religious movement which gives the appearance of exalted spirituality. It pretends to possess the gifts which the Holy Spirit bestowed upon the church in the days of the apostles. This movement naturally attracts the attention of Christians and arouses their interest. Many want to draw near and see this burning bush more closely. And they wonder, is this indeed from God? What could be wrong with it? Does not St. Paul treat it at length and even recommend it? Wouldn't it be wonderful if we had those gifts in our churches? And I think it does start off like that. There is an innocent desire for us as Christians to see God work, to see him flex his, his muscle, if you will, of working miracles among our day to bring people into the faith. So I think it does start off with this desire, this innocent desire to see God move on people and to save people. 
Movements and gifts of this sort have occurred a few times since New Testament days, but have blossomed in the 20th century. The modern Pentecostal movement sprang up just after the turn of the century, 19th to the 20th, chiefly in Southern California, USA. And Agnes Oxman received laying on of hands and spoke in tongues on January 1, 1901. In 1906, seven more spoke in tongues. A mission was established on Azusa Street in Los Angeles. It's funny because I was in Los Angeles a couple of years ago and I was I just got like a slice of pizza from this recommended pizza spot. And uh, so I was crossing the street and I was waiting on the cars to pass. And I looked up to see the street sign and it said, Azusa Street. And I'm thinking like, wait, is this the Azusa Street? So on the back of the street sign, it just had like a blurb about the historical moment that took place right there. And I said, wow, that's crazy. So pretty cool. Anyway, (laughs) it received widespread attention from the press. From that point onward, the movement grew. The doctrine of the movement is sometimes known as the full gospel, meaning spiritual gifts besides mere salvation. It is also known as the four square gospel. Its four points are entire sanctification, baptism of the spirit with tongues, faith healing, and premillennialism. The Pentecostal churches, the Nazarenes, churches of God, and others owe their origin to this movement. But lately it has gone ecumenical and has infiltrated all the church denominations. This new thrust is fostered by the Full Gospel Businessmen's Fellowship International, founded in 1953. It appears that the modern gifts do not occur spontaneously, but only after contact with some other persons with the same power. Interesting. It is important for us to evaluate this movement since the Bible commands us to try the spirits, whether they be of God, because many false prophets are going out into the world. Right. That's what it says in first John four verses one. It is also important because we do not want to condemn a movement if the Holy Spirit is truly in sponsor. I love that. That's one of the things that um, Lutherans are okay with. Whatever the Holy Spirit is doing, we don't oppose the movement of the Holy Spirit and however he wants to move. We just want to examine everything against the scriptures. If it's consistent with the word of God, amen. If it's inconsistent and contradicts or even opposes the word of God, then we are vehemently against it. I love that. Nor approve it if it is wicked. We do not want to quench the spirit or despise prophesying nor Speak a word against the Holy Spirit, which are very grave sins. Some say we are doing just this because they notice that people have been morally renewed through their experience of being baptized with the Holy Spirit. So this is very common. Typically, we think if something works, then it must be true. If something works, then it must be biblical. And that's not always the case. So a person can improve and grow morally and they used to do this. Now they don't do this based upon some experience. But that doesn't mean that that experience is from God or that it lines up with scripture. So we should be very cautious using 
positive results on the surface as evidence that God is doing something or evidence that is consistent with the Bible because it doesn't equal that. Remember in the Old Testament, when Moses cast down his rod and it turned to a snake, what did the Egyptian magicians do? The same thing. They cast down their rod and it also turned to a snake. The dope thing, though, is Moses' serpent consumed their serpent. So God is still more mighty and more powerful than any power in the world. Amen. Amen. (laughs) Is this then a baptism of the spirit? If we stick with the biblical language, we say no. The word baptize is used to refer to water baptism, the baptism of the remission of sins. Figuratively, it is used of tribulation. Matthew 20, verse 22. In Hebrews 9, 10, it refers to divers washings. Ephesians 4 and 5 tells us that there is one baptism only. Mark 16, 16 infers that it is necessary for salvation. Hebrews 6, 2, interestingly, speaks of a foundation of the doctrine of baptisms, plural. Probably this refers to the baptism of each individual, but in any case, it is certain that baptism other than water baptism were not intended here. Since Paul says there is one baptism. Finally, we have the reference to baptizing with the Holy Ghost and with fire. But we hasten to note that the book of Acts refers to Pentecost as the fulfillment of this prediction. So spirit baptism in the sense intended today is not a biblical term. That is important. Because the way people use spirit baptism today is how I mentioned earlier in one of those ways, either the way the guy talked about where it replaces water baptism or it's expected to be some superior baptism that follows water baptism where you really get the spiritual gifts of the spirit, speaking in tongues, healing, things of that sort. So if you're using spirit baptism the way it's used today to mean either one of those. The Bible does not support that. If you're using the phrase spirit baptism to refer to what took place at Pentecost, amen, because we can see that in the Bible and we can also see that it was fulfilled. So so there's no need for a new spirit baptism because the Holy Spirit already fulfilled the outpouring of the spirit that was prophesied and promised at Pentecost. So that's completed. Let's keep going. The important question, however, whether we call it a baptism or Pentecostalism or Corinthianism or a charismatic movement, it is this. Is it genuine? Does the Bible say the church will always have such a movement? Or does it at least say that it would be revived at the end of days just prior to judgment day? Is it, as many Pentecostals contend, necessary for the true church to have the fullness of the Holy Spirit? In an answer, we say, where special charismatic gifts are required as proofs of true Christianity, there the gospel of grace is already perverted. That's beautifully stated. 
where special charismatic gifts are required as proofs of true Christianity, there the gospel of grace is already perverted. We all know full well that we are saved by grace through faith alone, without the works of the law. But if some further experience or some higher level of spirituality is demanded, then we are not saved by faith at all, but by something else. As F.D. Bruner writes, the moment any right, any obedience, any experience, no matter how buttressed with scripture or with angels from heaven becomes a supplement to faith or a condition for the fullness before God, then the anathema, that word anathema means the curse, right? Then the anathema must be announced and the warning to avoid false teaching urged with all possible seriousness. Selah, because we cannot add any works to what Jesus accomplished. If you add anything to Jesus's works, you lose the gospel, period. With which special gifts could we stop and be assured of our salvation? This is a good question. So with which of these special gifts could we stop and be like, okay, finally, I've seen enough of these. Now we can finally be assured that we are really saved. Where where does it end? In Mark 16, 17, there are five signs, not gifts, mentioned that will follow them that believe. We specialize in tongue speaking and healing. Why not include poison drinking, snake handling, and devil expulsion? If the tongues are a proof of faith, then I should be able to drink poison harmlessly as another proof. Why not also add the healing shadow of the apostles? Acts 5 verse 12. Or the moving of mountains together with other wonders more spectacular than Jesus himself ever did. John 14, 12, there is no end to the standards one could impose as tests of true faith. If we follow Pentecostal logic, the genuine spiritual standards or outward marks of true faith are different. They are continuing in his word. John 8, 31, confession of faith, Romans 10, 9 through 10, mutual brotherly love, John 13, 35, and the fruits of the spirit mentioned in Galatians 5, 22 through 24. So what he's saying is, yeah, there are things that follow actually being a Christian, like brotherly love, like the fruits of the spirit, gentleness, kindness, patience, long suffering, self-control, all those things for sure. We, we, we will demonstrate those because we have moved into a relationship with Christ as he saved us. Amen. But if Pentecostal logic is correct, then why stop with just tongues or healings? Why not do all these other things mentioned in the Bible? Right. They get very choosy when it comes to what things demonstrate a more superior expression of spirituality. And it competes with the gospel. That's why we put the flag in the ground, draw the line in the sand and say, nah, this ain't biblical. It just is what it is. Requiring spiritual gifts also pervert the doctrine of the Trinity, for it considers the Spirit's presence something different 
from the sons. Hokima notices that according to the false doctrine of Pentecostalism, if one has not received the spirit baptism, one is living without his God-appointed leader. He may have received Christ at the times of conversion, but he is still leaderless. To have merely Christ in his heart is to have an inferior, second-rate kind of Christianity. That's what you end up saying when you press on it. And I think that's important to note. All right, real quick. So if you want to learn more about ancient Christianity as preserved through Lutheran thought on important topics like baptism, the Lord's Supper, justification by faith alone, the law and the gospel, and so many other beautiful confessions, make sure you check out cph.org. There you'll find so many Christ-centered resources that'll help you grow in the grace and knowledge of the Lord and the hope of the gospel. You will find books, Bible studies, devotionals, and some of my favorites like The Spirituality of the Cross by Gene Veith, Has American Christianity Failed by Brian Wolfmuller, to name a few. You feel me? Make sure you go to cph.org or you can go to cph.org slash flame and you will see a list of books that I've curated, that I've read personally, that have helped me out in my walk. So make sure you go there, tap in, grow in the grace and the knowledge of the Lord. You fed. Ooh, that's really good. Now you're presenting this conflict within the Trinity itself. Now we know that there's no inferiority in the Trinity. All persons are equal. So we dismiss that idea that you need some spirit baptism after being baptized with water, where the Holy Spirit promises to come upon us in the waters of baptism and to save us and to dwell with us. Amen. That's what the Bible actually reveals about the one baptism that is in Christ. That is word and water. (laughs) I'm going to give you a few more of these arguments and we'll bring it to a close. And again, you can get this article and read through it because it has layers upon layers of solid argumentation against this notion of spirit baptism. Let's keep going. How utterly at variance this is with the Bible. Christ teaches otherwise. He, the spirit, shall glorify me. For he shall receive of mine and shall shew it upon you. John 16, 14. To exalt the work of the spirit is praiseworthy, but to exalt the spirit above Christ is an error. Beautiful distinction. Supernatural gifts in the Bible were not marks of faith, but marks of the true apostles of Christ. Throughout the book of Acts, such gifts are bestowed only on the apostles and by the apostles on others. They were not given to third parties. Every instance of speaking in new tongues happened in the presence of the apostles. Take note of that. In some cases, as in Acts 19.6, it was by the laying on of their hands. Sometimes, as in the case of Cornelius, Acts 10, 45 through 47, it was without their hands, but while they preached. The Bible was plain in teaching that these supernatural gifts were marks of apostleship. In Mark 16, where such gifts are foretold, in verse 17, we see in verse 20 that the disciples went out and preached. 
the Lord working with them, confirming the word with signs following. This is the purpose the signs fulfilled, confirming the word. So Paul expelled devils, Acts 16, 18, on Pentecost, the apostles spoke in foreign languages, right? Not just gibberish, but actual languages. Paul was unharmed by serpent bites, Acts 28, verse 5. Many disciples laid hands on the sick and brought the recovery. And it is reported in tradition outside of scripture that John drank poison without harm as did also Judas Barsabas, the disciple who lost the election to Matthias, Acts 1-4. This truth that the gifts signified apostleship is underlined by Acts 2-43, where it does not say that all performed wonders, but wonders and signs were done by the apostles. And in Acts 4, after being threatened by the Jewish authorities, Peter prays to God, stretch forth thine hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of the holy child Jesus. A few verses later, we see that the prayer was answered in this way and with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and great grace was upon them. In Romans 15, Paul teaches that gifts were to serve the work of missions to make the Gentiles obedient by word and deed through mighty signs and wonders of the spirit of God. So what you observe from the scriptures are these gifts were given to the apostles to affirm the word, to bring those in who are outside of Christ. So there's a purpose with these gifts to serve the word of God. It was not this expectation to prove that you were really saved or this expectation to have something after salvation that really makes you a Christian or makes you some elite superior Christian. That's an odd and anti-biblical idea. That's what he's pointing out here. Ah, beautiful. Now, hopefully what you've gained here is at least enough to reapproach the scriptures and see that spirit baptism was fulfilled at Pentecost. And that there is no expectation to have some second experience that's superior to the one baptism that is word and water. Where the Holy Spirit saves us, he, he dwells with us, and he keeps us. So there's no need to have some second experience and to have it expressed in tongues or healings. That's just inconsistent with the text. All right, let me just end with what Paul says in Ephesians 4, verses 4 and 5. It says... There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism. Amen. Ah, beautiful. Anyway, this your boy Flame, a.k.a. St. Lou. And remember, God does not need our good works, but our neighbor does. You feel? I say before you go, that extra note. Bang.